My name's Aaron, and I have the privilege today of, uh, first and foremost, just gathering with you all, um, our church family. I think that's a privilege. I count it a privilege every time we get the chance to do that. So I'm super excited about that. But um, on a, the other thing I get to do is kick us off in a brand new series that we're, we're calling Uncommon Good. And uh, so over the course of these next four weeks, as we, as we work through this series, we've got two things in mind. The first thing we, we want to attempt to do through this series is help us as a church family, as followers of Jesus, uh, build a foundation uh, as to what it means to serve um, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. So, so aim number one is build a foundation of what it means for followers of Jesus to serve. And uh, just as a little caveat here, Jesus, if, if we put him in the category of leader, like he's not the only leader that's commissioned his followers to serve. Um, he's, not, he's not the only rabbi that commissioned his disciples to serve. He's not the only person that said, hey, it's important to serve. And um, many, many leaders have, have made a statement like that. But we believe there is something distinct about the essence of what it means for followers of Jesus to serve, hence the title of our series, Uncommon Good. We think that there's something uncommonly good that unfolds as God's people embark on serving in the spaces that God has us. So the first thing we want to do is try to build a foundation to better understand that. And so you could think of this, this week, week one, kind of as the theory of what it means for followers of Jesus to serve. And then uh, the, other, the other thing we want to focus on is like making that practical. We want to help um, us as a church family make sense of, of this foundation and give you some practical things to do. So you could think of weeks two, three, and four kind of as the practice of the theory that we're going to um, talk about today. And so um, in order to do all that, I've got a text in mind. And uh, it's, it's an ancient text. It's actually in uh, an Old Testament book called Jeremiah. And I'm going to be working from Jeremiah chapter 29. We'll go ahead and together read verses 1 through 14. So if you have your, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. And I'll read um, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll get, we'll get into what I think um, the foundation of serving like Jesus is based on what we see in this text. So Jeremiah 29, verse 1, here's what we read there. It says, this is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This, is af- this was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent by Elasah, son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I feel like I did pretty good with those names. Uh, forgive me if you have any of those names because um, I'm a work in progress when it comes to Bible translation. At any rate, here's what the letter stated. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not, de- do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it has prosperity, you will prosper. For this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets who are among you 
and your diviners deceive you. And don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I departed you from. So, so what we just read, it's an excerpt from a letter written by the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, there is a bit of divergence of opinion as to when this letter was written. But many historians agree that it was written around the time of 300 B.C. And all historians agree that it was written during a time when the Babylonian Empire was the dominant military force in that part of the world. And so uh, what, it, what was unfolding is Israel had rebelled against Babylon. And when that happened, the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, launched a strategic attack. And what he had in mind wasn't a violent overthrow of the people of Israel or, or, or um, the Jewish people, rather. What he really was aiming at was subjugating the entire Jewish way of life. And the way that he went about it is actually in the text. So what he did is, was extremely strategic, and, and he targeted the aristocrats, the professionals, the religious leaders, the influencers, the, the entrepreneurs, and the artisans. And, and, and what he figured would happen is if he could somehow deconstruct the leaders of Israel, if he could slowly strip the leaders of Israel of their distinctive identity as God's people, the rest of the nation of Israel would follow suit. And, and, and eventually, the entire nation of, of Israel would become completely unable to resist the power and influence of Babylon. And, and th- so this wasn't, this wasn't any kind of new strategy for Babylon. In fact, this was something that they had built the reputation of as this, like, global pluralistic culture. In fact, they had a reputation of consuming other worldviews into their pluralistic culture. And, and, and so the Jewish people are well aware of this. Their first move is they don't actually enter the city of Babylon. They refuse to move into the city of Babylon, and they settle on the, Kadar, the, the, uh, the Kabar Canal on the outskirts of the city. And, and as this was unfolding, there are also two schools of thought that are kind of arising within uh, this Jewish cultural context. And on one hand, what you have unfolding is um, there's a group of people that, that, that Jeremiah calls them prophets. He calls them diviners. And, and their, their main prerogative is to spread this message that the people of God, the people of Israel, are just to avoid the culture of Babylon. Don't move into the city. And one of the primary messages that they're pushing, if, if you were to go back to chapter 28 in Jeremiah's, the, the, the book of Jeremiah, what you'll find there is that the message that they, were, that they were perpetuating was the idea that, hey, all we have to do is hold the line for two years. God's going to overthrow the entire thing again. We'll be back in power. Just hold the line for two years. Don't integrate. Uh, Stay on the outskirts. Don't move into the city of Babylon. So that's one message on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the prophet Jeremiah who's saying something radically different. 
Uh, and, and to an extent or to a degree, what he's saying is, no, embrace, embrace Babylon. Actually move into the city of Babylon. And what he was doing is, is, at least what I believe Jeremiah was doing, is he was sharing the vision that God had for his people. And it wasn't that they would avoid Babylon. And it wasn't that they would move in and work to make the laws and the way of life in Babylon reflect theirs. God was calling his people to embrace Babylon in a way that would bring his uncommon goodness to the people there. And so uh, using that as a backdrop, there are three things I want to draw out of this letter that I think can help us build a foundation for what it means to serve as followers of Jesus and, and, and also how the primary aim of serving as a follower of Jesus, uh, although it will involve some very specific tasks and things that you're going to do, the primary aim of serving is really to, to bring the uncommon goodness of God into our communities, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and even in the context of our church family. And I think that starts to happen, that the uncommon goodness of God becomes available to people when we live. These are the three things that I think provide a foundation. When we live like God sent us. Uh, secondly, when we seek the common good. And then thirdly, when we work toward holistic renewal. And so when we put these three things together, what we have is a foundation for serving in a way that can bring the transforming power and presence of God into our lives, into our families, into our culture, into our community, uh, and even into the context of our church family. And so the first piece of that foundation is live like God sent you. Turn with me to verse 4. Here's, what, here's what's there. It says, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. So, so the very first thing um, that Jeremiah shares with regards to what God's message is for his people who have been brought into exile is that he's the one that's engineered the exile. I think that it's important to point that out. Here's what God says to his people. He says, I deported you from Jerusalem to Babylon. Before he, before he makes mention of anything they're supposed to do, he makes that very point clear. And then he goes on and he says, I'm the one that sent you from Jerusalem to Babylon. Live like I'm the one that sent you there. Build houses and live in them. Build your family, launch your career, become a part of the fabric of life in Babylon. Live as if you were a citizen of Babylon. And in, 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 um, in order to, to kind of, I guess, help us understand what God says when he says dwell there, um, is th the word live means to abide. It means that God's people are the kind of people who become such a part of the fabric of of life wherever they are, even when they're in exile, even when the, the stay is temporary, that their presence and their influence has the power to enhance the quality of life for absolutely everyone. And, and one of the things that I think is, is uh, for me, um, and maybe for you as well, what I think is really powerful about this story some, you know, a few thousand years later is that really what it helps us see is that followers of Jesus Really what we're a part of is this long, extensive, robust faith tradition that survived tremendous cultural and political turmoil. 
And it hasn't survived uh, for any reason other than the fact that it's rooted in something deeper than any one culture or political system. It's a faith that's rooted in Jesus. And, And because of this, I think as followers of Jesus that are living in 2022 can, can live through some pretty complex political turmoils without, without anxiety, trusting that God's redemptive work is, is far bigger than any political arrangement that we're ever going to face. Uh, so when God says, dwell where you are, here's what, he's, here's what I think he's trying to show his people. He's trying to show his people that their identity is ultimately rooted in him. And that doesn't change because you're in exile. It doesn't change because of a change of power. And it doesn't change because of any other circumstance. Like Babylon had this reputation of being a place where worldviews came to lose their distinction. Or in some cases just be completely obliterated by pluralism. Yet God is telling his people, live like I sent you to dwell there. Make your homes there. Engage in commerce. Become a part of the fabric of society. And so um, I guess to, to kind of flesh this out a little differently or help, help you ma- wrap your mind around it a little differently, I just want to share a personal story. So bear with me for a second. Um, before becoming a part of, of this church family, uh, I lived in, a, I lived in a, uh, the country of Guatemala. And what I think is uh, intriguing about that storyline is when I first got there in 2004, like I don't even know that I actually had ever met a Guatemalan person. Uh, knew very little about the culture, uh, did not know the language whatsoever. And so I headed down there for this 60-day stint, believing that I somehow, despite my lack of awareness of all the things I just shared, was going to have some, like, magical impact, right? I was going to, I was, I was destined to change the world, and that's where I was going. And, and, and the, the point of appeal for me in making that move was I had heard about a ministry that was involved in Uh, taking care of orphans and planting churches. And to me, that was intriguing enough to at least try it out for a couple of months. But mind you, after about two weeks of being confronted with a culture that was markedly different than my own and a language that was was markedly different than my own, I I was overwhelmed. I miss my family. Uh, I miss my food. I miss my people. I miss being able to just converse deeply in a language that was native uh, to me. Uh, I, I missed all of those things, and it got to the point where I was so over, and this was after 14 days, okay, so don't judge me, 14 days, okay, not a long period of time, but I felt so overwhelmed, um, and I have such a vivid memory of this, I decided that I was going to find a place to hide for a little while, I needed like some space, and there was this old, it, it's called a tienda, which was like a little convenience store on one corner of the property, and I like skirted behind there because my thoughts were, nobody's going to find me here. So I hid behind there, and I remember just like crouching down, putting my head between my knees. I cried. I prayed. And I was like, God, I I don't feel like I'm changing a whole lot of anything. I'm ready to get all the way up out of here. In fact, I don't even know if I'm going to last the 60 days. Um, And what I thought, what I thought, here's what was unfolding in my mind. What I thought was going to be this like amazing experience where God used me to change the world was stretching me in ways that I didn't even realize were possible. And I didn't, I didn't think I was going to make it there. But over the course of the next few weeks and after over the course of um, a couple of years living in this context, I had a number of experiences that that showed me something a little bit different about what God has in mind when it comes 
to serving. And, and I just want to share one that I feel like shaped my understanding of what it means to live like God sent you, to dwell wherever it is that you are. Uh, there, was, there was one evening where I, um, I decided I was going to climb up on the roof of one of the buildings. And what I don't mean is like I Spider-Man climbed <laughs> up the side of a building. What I do mean is I took the stairwell. And I stood on top of this building, and uh, what was really amazing about this, this location was you could catch a sun, you could catch a sunset, you could catch a, uh, like a 360-degree view of the mountain range that surrounded the valley where we lived. You could see all the way downtown. Um, you could see the big Catholic church down there on one end. And then on the other side of the building, you could see the cemetery. And so I, I'm, I'm looking at the mountains, and I'm taking in the sunset, and I'm just processing all this. I'm thinking, that's pretty amazing. And I glance over, and I see the cemetery. I'd seen it a number of times before this. In fact, I had seen people buried at that cemetery. But what was markedly different about this time is when I looked over at that cemetery, I had this vivid image that one of the tombs there, and they're all above-ground tombs, actually belonged to me. And I'm here to tell you I didn't die there. Look at me. Um, so that's not what I'm getting at. I'm not getting at like when God says live like you're supposed to dwell there. It doesn't mean you're always going to stay there forever. But I feel like through that vivid image, God was showing me something uh, that I needed to see if I was actually going to live in a place where he was calling me to dwell. And I think he was simply saying dwell here. Live as if you're never going to leave. And what God was showing me that day, I believe, is he was helping me discover that for a season, Guatemala would be home for me and that I would become a part of the fabric of life there through dwelling there. And that, that, that more importantly than all of that, my life was going to be shaped in ways that would otherwise have been completely impossible. So that's part of it. The other part of it was God was saying, look, if you, if you truly want to live here, you have to be willing to die here. You have to be willing to let the parts of you die that are getting in the way of you embracing the Guatemalan people with the love that says you're worth dying for. Look, when I first got there, most of the tension I was experiencing wasn't because I was trying to export the message of Jesus to a people that were different than me. Most of it was like, man, you guys eat a lot of salt and it's hot here and like, do we have napkins? It was all stuff like that that, frankly, God was not calling me to import my culture there. What he was calling me to do was dwell there in a way that would bring his interest and his purpose to life amongst the people of Guatemala. And so followers of Jesus are called to live like God sent us, to dwell where we are right now, and to love the people in our path in a way that communicates that they're worth dying for. And so on a surface level, when we, when we pivot back to these Jewish exiles, on a surface level, it looked like they were brought to Babylon through political and social forces. And I think sometimes we tend to view our lives in the same way, where, where we think, well, the places we end up are a result of some, some social force. We move because of a self-interest or an impact we want to make or a job opportunity or an educational opportunity or some, something that we've quantified as valuable, a valuable part of our life and we're willing to move to go get it. And I think all of those variables are valid and all of those things do lead us to the places where we end up to some degree. But I think the words of the prophet Jeremiah are being placed here and they're meant to help us see that God is at work through those social forces. 
He's at work through those interests. He's at work through those circumstances that change the trajectory of your life. He's at work through all of those transitions. And he has a far bigger purpose for our lives than whatever we think brought us to wherever we are right now. And I think his primary purpose for my life, and I'm just asking you to consider this as well, is his primary purpose for my life is that I become more deeply shaped in his image and likeness. He is far more concerned with what, who I'm becoming than he is with what I'm doing. And so the, the other part of God's deeper purpose, I think it's something that you only ever discover as you start living like God sent you to dwell wherever you are right now. And so would you consider, just consider this, that the place you are right now is far more than just some interim stop along the journey to wherever you think you're supposed to end up. Where you are right now, the workplace, the neighborhood, the community, the church family that you're a part of right now, I'm just offering you this as some perspective. Perhaps it's exactly where God has you. And, he, and, and he's asking you to take a, a step of faith and become a part of the fabric of life here in a way that will bring the heart of heaven to the community where you live. And so that's the first part of the foundation of serving as followers of Jesus. It's living like God sent you to dwell where you are. The second part of that foundation is to seek the common good. Go ahead and um, take a look at verse 7. We're going to look at the first half of verse 7. It says, seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. And there, there, there's God again saying, he's the one that engineered the exile. He's the one that engineered the deportation. He's the one that's planning his people in this new this new culture. Um, now I want you to jump all the way down to verse 10 because God says something else. Here's what he says in verse 10. He says, When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. And so you look at those two verses together, and what I think happens is you start to see that seeking the common good comes with a great degree of tension. On one hand, God is saying, live like I'm the one who sent you there. Live like you're supposed to be here. Integrate. Become a part of the fabric of society. Um, and so he's saying, make it your home. Appreciate it. Become a part of what's going on economically and socially and culturally. And then on the other hand, God is saying, hey, don't lose sight of the fact that this actually is not your home. And that, those two things together are the tension of becoming a part of the culture while remaining distinct from the culture. And I think that can be difficult to navigate. But I do think pointing out that tension can help us see and understand more clearly what it means to seek the common good. And I think uh, Jesus highlighted this tension. And one of the places that he highlighted this tension is when he, he told his disciples what they were supposed to be like. He was describing what his followers were supposed to be like. And he used the analogy of salt. He said, he said that his disciples are the salt of the earth. And what, what I think Jesus was saying is that his followers are the kind of people who enhance the quality of life in every culture they're a part of. And so in, in a basic sense, there are ancient cultures and even some still today that, that understand salt as a distinct substance that enhances everything it comes in contact with. And, and the only way that salt can actually do its work is, is it has to be dispersed it has to come in contact with something, and it has, to, it has to be distinct. And so what Jesus was getting at is he was saying, my followers are the kind of people who are such a part of the fabric of the culture that they come in contact with people in every sphere 
of the culture. But they're also so distinct from the culture that they're able to seek the common good in ways that bring out the best parts of any society while at the same time offsetting or addressing or pointing out the worst tendencies of a society. And when it comes to societies and cultures, I think that every society has some form of moral ideals, maybe hospitality or caring for the poor or self-expression or honesty or justice for the vulnerable, things like equality for everyone or, or even like philanthropy could be like a moral footing that, that a culture has. And I think within each society or culture, there are aspects of that moral framework that Jesus himself would affirm that we as followers of Jesus can affirm. Like for instance, I have... Um, I have some Muslim friends that I've, that I've recently got to know, and, and every time I step foot in their home, I become more convinced that they, th their expression of hospitality is far closer to the heart of God than mine is. And that's something that, that I think I could, I could affirm, that's, uh, just to give you an example. Now, when it comes to societies and cultures, there, there are also a number of things that, that, that shouldn't be affirmed because every culture and society falls short in some way of even living up to their own standards or ethical codes. And so like in, in our, what many cultural anthropologists describe as like highly individualistic culture, I think one of the things that, that we could point out is like relationships are deteriorating. I think we could talk about the breakdown of politics. I think we could talk about things like increasing incivility. I think we could talk about how there's a growing inability to extend things like understanding or forgiveness or respect to people who have different views of life than we do. And so uh, to get back to Jesus' salt analogy, just as salt is only effective is it, if, if it maintains its distinct chemical composition, followers of Jesus can't effectively seek the common good if they become just like everyone else in society. We can only love and benefit our communities, our neighborhoods, and our workplaces if we maintain our distinct nature as followers of Jesus. We can only love and benefit our culture if we're different from it. Followers of Jesus are, are people who maintain their distinction and seek the common good by dwelling in the culture as people who embody the values and interests of the kingdom of Jesus. Things like humility and peace and patience and generosity encourage. They seek the common good by conducting themselves with humility rather than getting defensive when somebody disagrees with you. Uh, with, with the humility that says, hey, uh, just to frame this for you, if God is infinitely wise, you can't, I can't fit infinite wisdom in like a 40-year-old mind. And I'm just going to throw that out there and say there's no length of time that that we, could, that we could live that would actually give us enough time to fit the infinite wisdom of God into our lives. Point being, there's always room to grow. There's always room to learn. We conduct ourselves with humility instead of getting defensive. We seek the common good by working to patiently persuade. We don't, we're not pushy. We're not trying to get our way. We patiently persuade rather than coerce and marginalize. We seek the common good by loving and tolerating and respecting people who view life differently than we do instead of choosing to demonize them or write them off or cancel them. We seek the common good by working through the, the, the fear of rejection, which is a legitimate fear, um, but we work through that fear 
And we have the courage to face criticism and disapproval when our way of life isn't aligned with the culture. And just frankly, if you're trying to keep up with Jesus, you're going to be misaligned with the culture in some way, shape, or form. And so when Jesus called his followers to be the salt of the earth, what he was ultimately saying is that his followers are people who are primarily shaped by the gospel, not the cultures in which they live. They're deeply formed by the gospel of Jesus. And here's what the gospel tells us. It tells us that we, we need Jesus just as much as everybody else. We need the ultimate salt of the earth dispersed and dispensed on our lives in a way that reshapes us because our lives are in such disarray that we, we're never beyond the need for renewal. And this, gives, this, this can kind of give us the humility that we need to seek the common good. But the gospel also gives us a hope that no one is beyond the scope of change and that, that the, only, the, the, the growth that we've experienced in our lives is all the time attributed to the intervention of Jesus in our lives. And I think this can give us the patience that we need to dwell with people who see things differently than we do. And now the more we come to, to grips with the reality that Jesus gave his life for ours despite our flaws, despite the ways that we outwardly disagreed with him, despite the ways that we've you know, not abided by his message or upheld his, his interests and his values, the more that we realize that he gave his life for ours despite all that, I think the better off we're going to be at coming to grips with the fact that seeking the common good means laying down our lives for others in a way that loves and welcomes everyone. Understanding, coming to deeper grips with understanding the, the, the length and the width and the height of God's love for us through Jesus, I think that's the catalyst that will allow us to love and tolerate and respect people who see life differently than we do. And I think the assurance that God's love and acceptance is without obligation, and it doesn't come with the demand to live up to some moral or ethical code, that should give us the courage to face criticism and disapproval. When God sent his people to Babylon to seek the common good, I don't think that he envisioned that his people would work to establish Babylon as the new Jerusalem or the new holy city. I don't think he envisioned that they were going to launch a campaign to make the laws uh, of Babylon or the way of life in Babylon aligned to their convictions. I also don't think that God was saying, hey, avoid the complex issues and don't, don't, you know, don't enter the public square and debate the complex, complex issues. I don't think God was saying that either. Here's what I think he was saying. He was saying, live with distinction as my people. Live in a way that brings the humility the love, the patience, the generosity, the courage, the peace of the kingdom of heaven to the people of Babylon. And so seeking, seeking the common good, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you sideline your convictions. And just as a little caveat here, I don't think that there are some people that believe that cultures become more welcoming when, when, when you know, everybody finds the common ground. But I don't think cultures become more welcoming of differences when everyone waters down their traditions or pretends like there aren't any, any differences and that everything's the same and that, that we're all always like looking for the common ground. I don't think that's what makes cultures more welcoming. And I don't think that's what God was calling his people to do. I think what he was calling his people to do was be distinct by embodying their convictions in a way that shows people that God's primary aim is to build a society where all people can flourish. 
that's socially, economically, spiritually, psychologically, physically. Like, that's the common good that God envisions for humanity. And that's the kind of common good that, that followers of Jesus are to work for in some way, shape, or form. And so seeking the common good, that's the second part of the foundation of, of serving as a follower of Jesus. The last part is to work toward holistic renewal. We're going to take a look at the second half of verse 7. Here's what it says. It says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. We're talking about Babylon still. For when, for when it, meaning Babylon, has prosperity, you will prosper. What I think is radically uh, crazy about this, and maybe you'd agree with this, is God is saying work towards the prosperity of a culture that literally exists to destroy your way of life. Work for the prosperity of your enemy. Work for the prosperity of people who don't see things the way that you see them. Work for the prosperity of, of people who are on the other side of whatever the, whatever the, you know, the item of debate is. Work for their prosperity. And then he says, not only, not only are you to do that, but there's an outcome that will be achieved as you do that. And so the common good that God has in mind for humanity, here's what I think it's best understood as. I think it's best understood as holistic renewal. And to, to really get to the heart of, of what that means, I think we, it's helpful to take a closer look at the Hebrew word that's, that's translated when God says, seek the welfare of the city. And it's the same word that's translated when God says, when it has prosperity, you will prosper. The word there is shalom. And what I want to point out is, I think that the word shalom really captures the essence of what God envisions for all of humanity. And so when God instructs his people to seek the shalom of the city of Babylon and to pray that shalom would come to the people of Babylon, the words welfare and prosperity aren't overly helpful. They don't even come close to helping us understand what God's vision for humanity is. And frankly, uh, and I think this is just a struggle that Bible translators have, there's not even a, there's not a word in English that captures the, the lexical range of this Hebrew word shalom. Shalom is holistic, all-encompassing prosperity that includes social flourishing, economic flourishing, it includes um, spiritual flourishing, psychological flourishing, and ultimately shalom is the reality that God desires for all of humanity. So I guess here's how I framed it in my mind, like whatever the best is in every category of our lives, that's what God has in mind when he says, seek the shalom of the city. And, and just the, to caveat that, it's not whatever I think is best. God has something far greater in mind when he says, seek the shalom of the city. And so uh, what, I, what I think is that a community that is experiencing the shalom of God is experiencing, it means that they're experiencing growing degrees of holistic renewal. It means they're, they're experiencing growing degrees of wholeness in every aspect of their lives. And so God tells his people to seek the shalom of Babylon and that he says that as the people of Babylon experienced holistic renewal, so will the people of Israel. And so in other words, as God's people work, toward the holistic renewal of their communities, of the cultures in which they live, they too will begin to experience holistic renewal. And according, according to this passage, uh, one of the primary ways that we can work toward holistic renewal is to, to pray to the Lord on behalf of our culture and communities. That's exactly what's in the text. And 
and um, maybe that sounds too passive for, for people who want to get out and lobby to change legislation or, or work to eradicate things like poverty or establish equality or tackle some other complex issue in our culture. God's not saying we shouldn't work in that way. I think what God is saying is that there's something deeper that should undergird our work when we work towards holistic renewal. I think God is talking about the posture that followers of Jesus should have when they work toward holistic renewal. When God says pray for holistic renewal, I think he's giving us an extremely practical way to get involved. He's giving us a plan that literally everyone can participate in right now. You, You can actually start working for the shalom of your family, your neighborhood, your community, your school, your friends right now. You don't have to wait until, until the right people are in power or the right laws are passed. You don't have to wait until you're spiritually mature. You don't even have to have a plan. You don't have to have physical strength. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be any of that. The only thing that you need to begin working toward holistic renewal in your community is a relationship with Jesus that has shaped you into the kind of person who loves people. I think this is what God was getting at when he tells his people to pray. He's saying, what makes my people distinct from any other culture in the world is their ability to love people, even people who don't support their way of life, even people who are actively working to eliminate their way of life. God is making it clear here, at least in my mind, that the highest ideal of his kingdom is love and his people are the kind of people who have a supernatural ability to love even their enemies. This is what it means when God says, pray to the Lord on their behalf, and when they prosper, you will prosper. So, so for years, for years, the prophets of, for centuries, the prophets of Israel had instructed God's people to pray for the shalom of Jerusalem. And this was, this was a central part of their heritage. And Psalm 122 actually records the prayer. And here's what it says. It says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. So when God told his people to pray for the shalom of Babylon, his desire was to reshape them into the kind of people who love at all costs. And so as exiles, the Israelites, here's something that had unfolded in their lives. And I think this unfolds in our lives when we're up against uh, worldviews that are different than ours or or, or our worldviews being challenged or people disagree with us or people disapprove of the way that we're going about life. One of the things that had unfolded in the lives of the Israelites is they had become a people that was paralyzed by resentment and hatred and bitterness and indifference, and God's trying to free them of all of that. God is saying, I want you to love this city. I want you to bring the heart of heaven to this city. I want you to live in a way that makes this city a place where all people can flourish, even your enemies, even people who outwardly oppose your beliefs. And and what he's also saying is you, you can't even begin to pray for the shalom of Babylon unless you first love it. And you can't love it unless your heart is reshaped by the God of heaven. You can't begin to love it until the resentment is gone and the cynicism is gone and the pride is gone and the indifference is gone and the hatred that's caused you to lose distinction 
as my people who love at all, all costs reemerges. Look, I don't think that we stand a chance at living like God sent us to dwell in the places that he has us, in the culture and communities that we're a part of, until we first love the people in those communities. I don't think that we can seek the common good of our communities until we love the people in those, in those communities. I don't think that we can even begin to work towards holistic renewal until we've been renewed by the love of God. And, and, and so here's, here's how I think people like us who need renewal, who know we need renewal, can be renewed by the love of God and become the kind of people who live like God sent us, the kind of people who seek the common good, the kind of people who work toward holistic renewal. I think we become renewed and more deeply renewed every time we see Jesus becoming an exile. Every time we see Jesus being sent to dwell amongst people in a way that brought the love and the patience and the humility and the courage and the generosity of heaven to cultures on earth. Jesus, Jesus became a part of the fabric of life in a way that, that reinvigorated uh, groups of people being valued who'd been historically marginalized and rejected. And he did all that even though it cost him his reputation. Jesus sought the common good in ways that, that brought literal healing to entire communities. Jesus addressed things like poverty and he highlighted injustice, injustices and he empowered oppressed people. Jesus also took the time to affirm people and communities that were built on ideals like love and forgiveness and generosity. And living like this Here's where it led Jesus. And when we live like this, I think this is where it's going to lead us as well, to some degree or another. Living like this led Jesus to unfamiliar relationships. Living like this led Jesus to some, some risky situations, some risky spaces. And for Jesus, ultimately, living like that cost him his life. And when we look to Jesus, who engaged the world, not just at the possible risk of his comfort, but at the sure and certain cost of his life. And we see Jesus allowing himself to be completely emptied out and exiled so that we could prosper. I think when we see Jesus like that, we can start to, we'll, we'll start to become the kind of people who live like God sent us. We'll become the kind of people who seek the common good. We'll become the kind of people who work toward holistic renewal in our communities because we'll become the kind of people who are primarily shaped by the love of Jesus. Look, we're, we're not called as followers of Jesus to follow the way of Jesus because it's going to be successful. Frankly, uh, there are countless people who disagree with the way of Jesus and disapprove of the way of Jesus and even see it as kind of a mockery. We're not called to follow the way of Jesus because it's going to be successful. We're called to follow the way of Jesus because it's what will literally bring the uncommon goodness of God to our culture and our communities. Let me pray for us. God, God, we thank you that you're the kind of God that is capable of organizing uh, absolutely everything in our lives in a way that will shape us more deeply uh, into your likeness and image. God, we thank you that you're the kind of God that is more concerned with who we're becoming than what we're doing. 
And God, we confess that we, uh, there are areas of our lives, there are areas of my life that need to be reshaped. There are perspectives I hold that are not aligned with, with uh, the values and interests of your kingdom. And, and Jesus, we're just asking for you to shape us into the kind of people who are primarily formed by your values and interests, that we were primarily formed by this, this great love that you have for us. Jesus, transform us into the kind of people who love the way that you love and who engage uh, in our communities the way that you would engage in our communities. Jesus, help us to become, become the people that you've called us to be so that we can live wherever we are as if you're the one that sent us there and we can seek the common good of the people in our lives and God, we can work toward holistic renewal in our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. God, God, shape us and form us more deeply into your likeness and image. In your holy name, amen.